electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, President Trump facing impeachment charges once again. Washington is facing a security crisis and a political crisis at the same time. Big tech under pressure for cracking down on the president's language online. Is it too little, too late? Chris Wiley, who blew the whistle on Facebook's user data scandal. I think one of the things that we're seeing is what happens when a company does not do due diligence on its own products prior to release. Algorithms play a really big role in spreading this problematic content. And former Twitter news executive Vivian Schiller. We are in a moment of national crisis. There are people who are using these platforms right now to organize an armed insurrection. This is a national emergency. Pfizer CEO Albert Borla on COVID complications. The main bottleneck right now it is to make sure that we ramp up our operations so that we can administer more vaccines. And meeting vaccine demand. We feel now very confident that we will increase dramatically our production for this year. Uh, up to 2 billion doses. It's Tuesday, January 12th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. House Democrats have now introduced articles of impeachment against President Trump, accusing him of inciting an insurrection last week when a mob of his supporters attacked the Capitol. Now Washington is bracing for more protests and Eamon Javers has the latest for us this morning. Eamon, good morning to you. Yeah, good morning, Andrew. Washington is facing a security crisis and a political crisis at the same time in the wake of last week's violent attack on the Capitol building. Let's start on the security front <clears throat> as members of Congress are, are slowly beginning to realize that the threat uh, is not over here of violence from Trump supporters uh, in relation to the inauguration and other events that are coming up in Washington. What we saw from the FBI yesterday was a warning of possible armed protests at all 50 state capitals starting on January 16th. All 50 state capitals expected to possibly experience armed protests. Uh, the FBI saying that the armed groups are threatening to stage an uprising if Congress uh, were to remove President Trump. One congressman now uh, providing information to reporters saying that two Capitol Police officers have been suspended and as many as 10 to 15 are under investigation for their role in the riot, whether they in any way aided and abetted the rioters who stormed the Capitol on Wednesday. The president, meanwhile, has supported uh, an emergency declaration for D.C., allowing additional federal assistance. All of this coming as the Secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, resigned yesterday uh, in the wake of last week's events. So we are without even an acting director of Homeland Security at this point. Meanwhile, uh, on the political side, Democrats are moving forward with an impeachment effort. <clears throat> Today, they are expected to vote on a resolution calling on Mike Pence, the vice president, to push forward with the 25th Amendment and remove the president from office immediately. Failing that, and that is expected not to go anywhere because Pence does not seem to be leaning in that direction, failing that, uh, we think that there will be an impeachment vote by the Democrats on Wednesday. It will attract 
quite a number of Republican votes. Not clear how many Republican votes at this point. Um, some Senate Republicans are imploring the House now to keep the articles focused specifically on Trump's incitement of insurrection. That's the sort of uh, impeachment article uh, that could garner Republican support uh, in the Senate as well. But Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat of West Virginia, says the impeachment effort is ill-advised. And there's some question about whether there would be enough votes in the Senate to convict and remove the president on a charge of inciting insurrection. So uh, we think that this process will begin on Wednesday. Not clear when it will end before or after the president's term in office comes to an end at noon on January 20th. Guys, back over to you. Hey, Eamon, uh, before we let you go, we've obviously seen a number of companies, I shouldn't say just a number, a, a parade of companies come forward uh, over, over the last 24 hours. And I'm curious just what the emotional reaction is uh, to the extent that you can measure it uh, both at the White House and elsewhere right now. You know, we've got a soundbite here uh, that the control room has teed up uh, from a Republican congressman. Uh, from last night. He was on the news with Shepard Smith describing what he said uh, could be the violent reaction to his votes in Congress. I think that captures the emotional reaction uh, as well as anything. Uh, why don't you take a listen to that? I'm expecting there will likely be more political violence. And so, you know, my expectation and the expectation of some folks I'm talking to who are trying to vote our conscience on this is that there will be folks who try to kill us. That's the stark reality, Andrew. Uh, folks who try to kill us is what members of Congress are expecting in the wake of their vote here uh, on impeachment and removal of the president of the United States. Uh, that's where we are as a country. It is a, it is a bleak thought. Uh, it is an accurate thought. Uh, and, and the prospect here is at the end of this pro-Trump violence, uh, this is not over at this point. Hey, Eamon, I know there, there's been a, a lot of talk about how long the fundraising will actually be impacted. And I know there's been specific talk about whether Republicans can fundraise with Rick Scott being the one who leads up the national Republican um, arm of this right now from the Senate. Um, he voted against ratifying some of the state's votes. And that's particularly, look, a lot of these companies have said they're not going to give any political money to anybody all the way around. It's kind of amazing when you think about how much money was just spent in Georgia. But what's the real impact? How long do you think this lasts? And what is the Senate, what is the House doing about it, if anything? Well, there's not much they can do about it. I mean, the companies are the ones who decide how they spend their money. You're seeing companies dividing themselves into several different camps, right? There's the first camp where you're saying, we're not going to give any money at all, a pox on both their houses, forget about it. I'm told there are some of those companies who uh, are simply taking a pause on political contributions as they try to get their policy straight uh, in terms of who they're going to support and who they're not. So some of those companies might further define what they're going to do with their with their political cash. You're also seeing companies that are saying they're simply not going to donate uh, to anybody who voted uh, to reject the Electoral College results, uh, saying that that's simply a bridge too far in this democracy. And those are the people we're not going to support. Some of those companies putting a cap on that, saying that's for one election cycle. So two years for House members, six years for senators, uh, saying that they won't donate during that period of time. We've also seen at least one company demand its money back. Uh, saying we supported these candidates, that was a mistake, we want our cash back. So there's a variety of responses here from companies. All of that uh, is damaging politically to those members of Congress who are going to be affected. But uh, some of the calculus, frankly, is that there's a swarm of people online who could fill the gap. Uh, the, the, the people that you saw storming the Capitol have behind them millions of supporters. 
And those people have been writing checks. The president has raised uh, something like $200 million in support for his Stop the Steal effort since the election. Uh, that type of fundraising prowess online might be able to offset sort of the establishment corporate uh, donations that you've seen getting pulled this week. Amy Javers, thank you uh, so very much for uh, helping us understand all of uh, these remarkable events that we've been witnessing. Thanks. While Washington grapples with its allegiances, Silicon Valley and the tech industry are weathering troubles of their own. What's the line between publisher and platform? What social media's culpability in last week's riot in the Capitol? And what are we going to do about it? Social media companies, under pressure from their users and maybe their conscience, are taking action. Overnight, Twitter said it suspended more than 70,000 accounts associated with the QAnon conspiracy. And Facebook announced it would ban any content centered around Stop the Steal. But for one of our next guests, these actions are a little too late. Christopher Wiley is the Canadian technologist who raised the first alarm on Facebook's Cambridge Analytica data scandal back in 2018. He's also one of the first people to ever be banned from Facebook, so he knows a thing or two about that. If you haven't watched The Great Hack on Netflix during the pandemic, or if the last two years of roller coaster news have jumbled your memory, that's understandable. Let me give you a recap of what happened. Cambridge Analytica was a British consulting firm that helped conservative presidential campaigns on social media in 2016, like Ted Cruz's bid for the White House, and of course, Donald Trump's. The firm was found responsible for the Defeat Crooked Hillary campaign on Facebook. In 2018, The Guardian and The New York Times published an expose revealing that Cambridge Analytica harvested data from tens of millions of Facebook profiles without the user's knowledge or consent. The total number of profiles breached eventually settled at 87 million. The Cambridge Analytica scandal was one of the first times social media became a flashpoint in the functioning of democracy. The Federal Trade Commission launched an inquiry just days after the first reporting was published. And Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and his COO Sheryl Sandberg spent the better part of the next year apologizing to their users and attempting to rebuild trust. It's also become clear over the last couple of years that we haven't done enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm as well. And that goes for fake news, foreign interference in elections, and developers misusing people's information. We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility, and that was a mistake, and I'm sorry for it. This was a huge breach of trust. People come to Facebook every day, and they depend upon us to protect their data. And I am so sorry that we let so many people down. About a month after this data harvesting came to light, Zuckerberg testified in front of Congress for the first time. We have made a lot of mistakes in running the company. I think it's, it's pretty much impossible, I, I believe, to start a company in your dorm room and then grow it to be at the scale that we're at now without um, making some mistakes. And because our service is about um, helping people connect and information, um, those mistakes have been different in, in how they, we try not to make the same mistake multiple times. I'm not the type of person who thinks that all regulation is bad. So I think the internet is becoming increasingly important in people's lives, and I think we need to have a full conversation about what is the right regulation, not whether it should be or shouldn't be. 
And Christopher Wiley, that initial whistleblower, wrote a book about the scandal and about big tech's responsibility to its users and the technology it builds. Here he is on CNBC in 2019 discussing big tech's role in the 2016 elections. You know, just because things didn't blow up doesn't mean that there aren't serious harms that were done to the democratic institutions of the United States and more broadly how society functions moving forward. Pretty prescient, actually. So today we asked Christopher Wiley about the guardrails, or lack thereof, on big tech. And this time we invited Vivian Schiller, executive director of Aspen Digital at the Aspen Institute, former global chair of news at Twitter, and former president and CEO of NPR. Here's Andrew. Chris, I'm going to start with you, given uh, that you've lived in the midst of this for quite some time yourself personally. And so the question is, who should decide? Should this be the government or the C- or, or, the, or the companies themselves? Yeah. So I think what we're seeing is um, the emergence of, you know, dominant players on the Internet that have utility-like features without the corresponding obligations of a regulated public utility. And so, you know, in my case, I was uh, banned when I blew the whistle on what was happening on Facebook to U.S. law enforcement. Um, but at the same time, we also see all kinds of other people being banned now. Um, th- I think the, the real fundamental question is not whether or not the government or, or, or private companies should decide, but that we should create an ecosystem of rules which makes it clear what is acceptable and not acceptable uh, on these platforms. And to a broader point, when you regulate utilities um, and other technical uh, sectors, you know, we call it big tech, but aerospace, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals, all kinds of companies are, are also big tech. One of the things that we require companies to do is implement testing, safety testing and quality testing of their products before they implement, a, you know, a widespread release into the public. And I think one of the things that we're seeing is what happens when a company does not do due diligence on its own products prior to release. Algorithms, uh, you know, are, are play in a really big role in spreading this pro- problematic content. And in that sense, you know, I think if we were to implement more utility-style regulation of these of these companies, they would be required to do testing of these products to understand their behavior prior to releasing to the public. Right. Hey, Vivian, let me ask you this, and, and we've been wrestling with this on the program uh, for the past couple of days. Do you look at these companies, Twitter and the other social media companies, as a public square, as a place uh, where you will, your view ultimately will be censored by a company and there's a freedom of speech issue? Or do you say to yourself, these are private businesses and they can make their own decisions? Well, as a technical matter, of course, they are private businesses and can make their own decisions, but they are also public squares, without a doubt. But I want to separate the current uh, emergency we're in from the medium and long-term um, solutions that we together need to grapple with over the course of the next year and beyond. We are in a moment of national crisis. There are people who are using these platforms right now to organize an armed insurrection where we know from intelligence that has now been reported that there are, uh, attempt, there are going to be ongoing attempts to assassinate public officials and, uh, and, and cause widespread havoc. So this is a national emergency, and I think the platforms are doing exactly what they need to do to stop, <laughs> to preserve our democracy and stop that from happening. That said, when we right. get past the crisis, there is going to be a reckoning that needs to happen around how, what we do with this kind of weaponization of platforms for people to organize for violent means. 
Vivian, let me just follow up and ask you this. Um, and I, I should say up front, I think there's a false equivalence even with the question I'm about to ask, and it pains me to ask it, but I'm asking it because I see so many people online saying things like this. They say, well, you know, there, there might be uh, protests and unrest and or worse this week, but look at the unrest that took place over the summer. Look at all, all sorts of other scenarios. As I said, I think of it as a false equivalence, but what do you tell those viewers? Yeah, of course it's a false equivalence. We're talking about the uh, First Amendment protected right uh, for people to express their opinion, to gather, to protest, and attempts to overthrow uh, the, the government, which is effectively what we're seeing with this interaction, insurrections. They're, uh, these individuals are trying to overturn a uh, lawfully uh, uh, conducted election for the president of the United States. So there, I'm sorry, it is, it, it, false equivalence doesn't even begin to get at it. It's, it's sort of a ridiculous concept. Hey, Chris, uh, you were talking about trying to set rules of the road, if you will. The question is, can you really set rules of the road that can be uh, followed in real time, given that this is a real time medium? Yeah. So I think this really gets to a, a really important point, which is that we really need to bring um, Silicon Valley and these, these digital platforms into the norms of regulation that we see in other technical sectors. So what I mean by that is when you look at you know, standard practice in other sectors, uh, testing of behaviors of new technical innovations is often a requirement prior to release into the public. And so when we look at the you know, long-standing uh, behavior of some of these algorithms to disproportionately preference disinformation, hate speech, et cetera, this should have been caught in some kind of due diligence process by these platforms. And so I think when we, when we sort of ask the question, you know, how can we, you know, regulate a, a technical sector, um, we, we do it all the time. Uh, and so just because it's, you know, at scale and it's in, in real time, that doesn't give, you know, these companies a pass to say, well, you know, it's complicated, so we'll just leave it there. I mean, imagine if we let but any other technical sector, you know, use that excuse. We but, wouldn't accept it. But the entire business model is complicated, and I'm, I'm not making excuses. I'm just trying to think technically how you could actually do it. Because it's one, th it's sure, one well, thing to regulate a media company an uh, and the conversation we're having. You know, it... It, I don't think just because it's complicated is an excuse. Um, you know, these are companies which are making profit uh, off of this really problematic business model and this problematic technical setup. And so just because it's complicated doesn't, you know, I, I don't care if it's complicated. It has to be fixed. And the, my point to any of these companies, you know, to that point would be, well, if it's, if it's complicated, why didn't you do testing prior to release into the public? Why didn't you do a, a, you know, a diligent job right. at understanding what are the potential risks of harm that you may be exposing to, to individuals or, or society prior to release of these, these products? Hey, Vivian, um, you've lived inside the belly of the beast, or maybe I should say the belly of the bird at Twitter. Um, does Jack Dorsey get it? And, and is it possible to do uh, what Chris is recommending? Well, yes, it is. It is certainly possible. These tech companies have some of the most brilliant engineers um, at scale in, in the world. So um, I, I think it's, it's, but I think we need to look beyond just the technical 
issues. Uh, do the CEOs want to, uh, do they get what's going on? Yes, I, I, without a doubt they get what's going on. And it's complicated because you can't, dis, you can't disaggregate the um, impact on their commercial uh, business models and the impact on their, on their reputation and the risk of regulation, uh, particularly with uh, Democrats in the White House and controlling both houses of Congress. So yes, they get it. I think we're going to see serious action. We need to get past this, um, uh, this current moment of emergency that's going to extend right. at least until the inauguration. But I also just want to raise a and point. Then, it's not just about the platforms. The bigger issue is the cloud computing companies and the app stores. That's a much bigger crisis uh, to these platforms than just the individuals on them themselves. Well, that put them out of business. We've only got 30, Vivian, we've only got 30 seconds, but let me ask you about that, which is, do you believe that now it's now has the responsibility, quote unquote, moved up the stack now that Google and Apple and AWS are having to effectively police the apps? And are they going to have to do that across the board? Well, it's a moment of reckoning now. It's moving all the way up the stack, including to um, the companies that are deciding whether or not they're going to continue to put their ads, whether they're going to support politicians. There's, this is really a moment of reckoning across the board that uh, is going to have to come to some kind of resolution very soon. Vivian, Chris, thank you guys uh, so very much for joining yeah. us this morning and offering your perspective. Talk to you soon. Next on Squawk Pod, Pfizer's CEO on the COVID vaccine. Right now, I think we have released 33 million doses and we have, uh, let's say, half of what we have manufactured is sitting on the, on the shelves. Getting out life-saving doses across all 50 states. Bottom line, they are all trying to improve right now this because everybody feels that this is way behind what they wished to be. And I feel confident that within, uh, let's say, a month or so, we will be able to reach the level that we always want. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Becky Quick. Welcome back, everybody. The COVID vaccination rollout has been slow. According to the CDC, more than 25 million doses have been distributed, and nearly 9 million people have now received their first dose. To try and help speed things up, mass vaccination sites are popping up across the country. Contessa Brewer joins us right now. She's got more on that front. And Contessa, good morning. Becky, good morning to you. Mass vaccination sites are crucial if the new White House administration is to reach its goal of 100 million shots in the first 100 days. And those improvised shot factories are opening up coast to coast. In New Jersey, retail's loss is a big gain in the fight against COVID. A shuttered Sears store, an old Kmart, are now mass vaccination centers. And then you have the crowds returning to sports stadiums, not to watch, but for their vaccines, cars in slow lines at the Bristol Speedway in Tennessee. San Antonio expects to be able to process 1,500 people a day at the Alamodome. Dodger Stadium is opening up for shots this week. And the nation's largest stadium, the Big House at University of Michigan, has no fans. Instead, frontline healthcare workers and high-risk students are getting their shots. Michigan Medicine has ordered 24,000 doses, hoping they can move on to the next in line this week. But they're only scheduled to receive 4,000. And all of those, Becky, are needed for second doses. So 
No new shots for now. Remember Field of Dreams? If you build it, they will come. Well, a lot of the organizers worry they'll come and then there won't be any vaccines to offer. Becky. What is the holdup with the supply at this point? Because we keep hearing about how there's 22 million or 25 million that have been distributed, but only 9 million that have been given, given out. What, what's the problem? It's a great question, and I wish there was an easy answer to it. We heard yesterday from New York Governor Cuomo. He said, look, we have a million doses on hand. We have 4 million people who are eligible right now to get this first frontline shot. So it, at this point, if we're getting 300,000 shots in per week, it's going to take us 14 weeks just to vaccinate that first tranche of frontline health care workers, mm-hmm. never mind people who are older that, but, you know, you've got essential workers in grocery stores and restaurants, some who have um, conditions that make them vulnerable. We would rather have people signed up and awaiting the vaccine than have the vaccine awaiting people. I understand millions of people want the vaccine today, but we must be patient, even though it is an impatient time. In Florida, Becky, we're hearing some counties telling seniors, look, thanks for registering. We'll call you. Don't call us because right now we don't have the shots on hand. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like no easy answers and definitely some hiccups at the beginning here. Um, Contessa, thank you very much. It's great to see you. The COVID vaccination rollout has been slow, to say the least. To help speed things up, we learned today the Trump administration, in its final days, will issue new guidelines that expand coronavirus vaccine eligibility to everyone 65 years old and above, as well as those under age 65 with comorbid conditions. According to a senior administration official, the previous focus on just vaccinating healthcare workers and nursing homes has created a bottleneck. Both Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna's vaccines require two rounds of injection a few weeks apart. And while releasing nearly all vaccine doses on hand could quickly ratchet up availability, it also runs the risk of depleting resources that are necessary in this massive immunization effort. For more on the vaccine rollout, we were joined today by Pfizer CEO Albert Borla. In this interview, you'll hear CNBC's Meg Terrell, Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Meg. That change in policy could come as soon as today. We are hearing that the administration plans now to recommend to states that they open vaccinations to everybody age 65 plus. This was first reported by Axios. We are now seeing also reporting from Bloomberg saying that the CDC director will send a letter to governors to this effect today. So we should hear more about that. That, of course, amid pressure about a slower than hoped for vaccine rollout. Uh, Joining us now to discuss is one of the premier vaccine makers in this pandemic, uh, Pfizer CEO Albert Borla. Uh, and so much more, of course, from the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference. Uh, Albert, thanks for being with us this morning. You know, talking about this idea that more people could become eligible to get a vaccine, that just puts more pressure on you uh, and Moderna to manufacture these doses. Tell us about how the manufacturing is going and your confidence in being able to keep up a steady pace. Thank you very much, Meg. First of all, let me say that uh, if this is true, what we are hearing, I think it's very positive. I think this is exactly what needs to be done. And I think so far, uh, I don't think that we have an issue of offering uh, less vaccines than the country or the countries, frankly, need. Uh, We have much more than uh, they can use right now. So I think the main bottleneck right now is to make sure that we ramp up our operations so that we can administer more vaccines. When it comes to our ability to manufacture, yesterday our partner, 
uh, already announced what I'm going to announce also myself today, that uh, uh, we feel now very confident that we will uh, increase dramatically our production for this year, uh, up to 2 billion doses, uh, and to feel comfortable that we will be able to deliver that. Uh, that was the result of uh, multiple steps that we took, uh, but uh, this is where we are right now. So I feel very comfortable that the contacts that we have with the U.S. government, we will be able to deliver on schedule. Hmm. Well, you just mentioned you you have more vaccines than uh, are, are being used right now. And, and that's just sort of mind boggling because we thought it was going to be the opposite problem, that everybody's going to be pounding down the door and there wouldn't be enough supply. What can you tell us about how much you've already made that you have sitting there ready to go um, once the, the gates are opened? And we do understand that the um, policy change today could also include uh, releasing some of the doses that are being held for a second dose. Yeah. At, at the end of the last week of 2020, for example, uh, we had already manufactured more than 70 million doses and we had released from there, because there's a quality control that you need to release, around 50 million uh, doses. Uh, uh, then we manufactured more the first week of uh, January. Uh, right now, I think we have released uh, 33 million doses, and we have, uh, let's say, half of what we have manufactured is sitting on the on the shelves here. And it sounds like from your increased forecast for how much you can make this year, now up to 2 billion doses in 2021, that's up from 1.3 billion. We understand some of that is because this fortuitous um, finding that there's an extra dose in those five-dose files, that accounts for 20% of that. But it also means that your manufacturing seems to be going better than you expected. Uh, so should we be expecting an increased pace, really, of output from you um, on a steady drumbeat throughout the year? Oh, yes. This is what I'm, uh, I, I'm very confident that this will happen, much higher than what we had forecasted before, and to the tune of going from 1.3 to $2 billion. The 20% increase, because we could have six doses in the vial, was the result of data, but also what we generated, and we submitted to all regulatory authorities. And right now, the six doses have been approved by FDA, uh, the European authorities, the WHO, Israeli authorities, uh, Switzerland authorities, you name it. So basically the entire world is using now six doses. But also we have done tremendous steps to improve uh, production of lipids by our third-party manufacturers, our uh, production of uh, the drug uh, substance in our manufacturing sites. Uh, we, we did a lot of things. Actually, I have to say that what our manufacturing team did was almost... Uh, another miracle following what our research team did to bring this vaccine in such record time, they are scaling up manufacturing in speeds that we didn't think that uh, were possible. So they are also making the impossible possible. Yeah, Albert, that, that has been uh, no um, small order on either of these fronts. We've been absolutely amazed what your scientists have done, what the manufacturers have done with able to, being able to get this out there. But when you talk about the 50 million doses that you alone released last year, and you consider that that's not the only vaccine out there, and then you realize that only nine, maybe nine and a half million Americans have gotten a shot to this point, we talk all the time about the bottlenecks. Where are the bottlenecks that you see? Yes, and to make sure that we are accurate, that was global. So in the U.S., we offered to the U.S. 20 million doses, this 50 as we had. But as you said, they took... Uh, uh, less. Uh, it has to do with uh, bottlenecks, I think, in the execution. I think they are gearing up to fix them. Uh, I think it has to do with uh, how the centers operates with with, uh, with uh, states. It, it has to do with some of the policies that they are implementing. 
for good reasons, but you know they are debatable. Bottom line, I think it is uh, they, they are all trying to 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 improve right now this because everybody feels that this is way behind what uh, they wished to be. And uh, I feel confident that within uh, uh, let's say a month or so we will be able to reach the level that we always want. Oh, Albert, it's Meg again. Um, you know, yesterday, the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, wrote a letter to Secretary Alex Azar requesting permission to just buy 100,000 doses directly from Pfizer. Um, do you think that that would help? Could you do that with permission from HHS, uh, sell directly to states? Could that fix some of these bottlenecks? I don't know if that will fix some of the bottlenecks, but it looks like uh, the governor believes so. And um, right now, we can't. Uh, it's up to uh, HHS to indicate to whom we can sell. As you know, we operate under a special emergency use authorization uh, in the U.S. Uh, uh, so if they uh, permit us to do so, we will, uh, but they need to agree or not. Albert, uh, it's a small issue, but I, I'm curious from a, just a corporate governance perspective what you made of the decision uh, by Moderna and their team uh, to go ahead and vaccinate uh, all of their senior level employees, their families, and also their board members and their families? I, I, it's not appropriate for me to comment uh, what Moderna or any other company are doing, and I respect all of them enormously. Uh, I'll tell you what we do. And uh, what we do, uh, I didn't get the vaccine. I, I, we had to receive the license for me to get the vaccine because I'm now without knowing or without wanting a public figure that uh, could enhance the, 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 the confidence by me taking the vaccine. But I didn't do it because, uh, you know, what if someone was telling you, you do it, but you cannot do your colleagues working on this show, right? So it's, I feel the same. Why should I do it when my leadership team cannot do it? And uh, why the board should do it when our other employees cannot do it? Right now, we received the license to vaccinate in Pfizer the essential workers. And the essential workers are the people that they are working in the manufacturing side, that producing all these medicines, and in the research side that they are working in critical research programs. And we started already doing that. This will be a number of uh, 30,000 approximately people uh, of the total of almost 80,000 employees and contractors that we have in Pfizer. Uh, and uh, we do not plan to vaccinate, prioritize, let me put it this way, our executives or our board members ahead of our essential workers. You know, my, my as I, people are pressing, and I told them many times, my dad taught me that uh, it's not nice to cut the line. So we will wait our, our turn. Absolutely. Albert, we know you called your vaccine effort Project Lightspeed, and we're sure you're applying that same uh, speed and focus to the rest of the pipeline. We appreciate you being here. Thanks again. Thank you very much. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? 
Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Subscribe to and share Squawk Pod. And we'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 